Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I, I wish you could swim like dolphins, like dolphins can swim. The opening lines of David Bowie's great song, Heroes, I apologise for not singing it. Um, I'm just not equal to doing that. Um, it was recorded in 1977 when David Bowie was living in West Berlin, hanging out with Iggy Pop. Um, and of course, the lyrics famously name check the Berlin Wall. Um, but for me, I think it's, it's that opening that is the most haunting. Because in July 1977, the same month that, that Barry began recording Heroes, um, the body of uh, an East Berliner, Henry Weisser, was found on the Marshall Bridge water border in Berlin Mitter. Uh, he'd been dead for two months. He'd almost certainly died trying to cross the River Spree from East Berlin into West Berlin and had, had died while doing so. And it's hard not to think that his fate didn't influence Barry's idea of the lovers separated by the wall, if, if only he'd been able to swim like a dolphin. Um, and I think, Dominic, um, the Berlin Wall is a great theme for a podcast this August because it's the 60th anniversary of its building. I think it actually the 13th of August is, is when it began. Um, as a historian of, of the modern world, I mean, in a way, the Berlin Wall, I mean, it, it, it served as a symbol for the Cold War. But also it's coming down serves as a symbol of the end of the Cold War. It, it did. You're absolutely right. I think um, it's extraordinary, isn't it, when you look back? I think the Berlin Wall is one of the hardest things to explain to people who are too young to remember it. So I think you can explain the Cold War. But that sort of the sense of the divided city and just the colossal iconographic importance of the Berlin Wall. I mean, for people like us who grew up in this sort of 70s and 80s, the Berlin Wall... I mean, the weird thing is, it wasn't an. It kind of was an obscenity and 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 a symbol of you know the the sort of madness and terror of the Cold War. But at the same time, it had always been there in our lives, so it was just part of the. Sort yeah, you of, took it for granted. You completely took it for granted, and that's the weirdness was when it wasn't there. Precisely the idea. I mean, to me, there was always West Berlin and East Berlin. They appeared in Bond films. They were part of the sort of conversation, and and that moment when the Berlin Wall came down and there would be one Berlin and one Germany. That was the weird bit because I'd always known nothing but West Germany, East Germany, East Berlin and so on. I mean, it's it's a, it's a an extraordinary thing to get your head around. And, and imagine a wall like that in London or Paris or something. It's, it's, it, it, it's mind-boggling. But it happened in the capital of modern Germany, one of the most dynamic and exciting cities now in the world. Well, so it's a great theme uh, and we need the author of a great book, to take us through it and very fortunately we have ian mcgregor the author of checkpoint charlie um book about the berlin wall uh with us uh ian thanks so much for coming on on the podcast you've written so you've written about the berlin wall so you've been thinking about it for you know long long time do you feel kind of divorced now from the strangeness of it or do you are there still moments where you go wow that's odd oh yeah i mean i'm 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 pretty much the same age as you guys so just what Dominic says. I mean, I, I, he basically took the words out of my mouth. I grew up with the permanence of not just the Berlin Wall, but obviously of, of uh, the intra-German border, which we can talk about later, and the physicality of it. it to me, growing up, uh, 
lover of history since I was 11. It, it was as permanent as the Himalayas. Uh, it was just never going to go away. So, yeah, it's, uh, I'm a bit of a, a Cold War, Berlin Wall, Berlin City geek, uh, because that's that's what I was brought up on. I mean, I, I, I've had my father and various relatives all served in the British Army of the Rhine from the 1950s on. Yeah, so that's weird, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> the British Army so. had an, <laughs> the British Army on the Rhine. It's all so odd, and yet yeah. we, we all just took it for granted. Yeah, so that that's I just grew up on their stories. And my dad, he was never stationed in Berlin, but he obviously had uh, R and R trips there. So I had the excitement of him wide-eyed telling me what it was like, the bright lights and everything, the American sector and all the things you could buy and things like that. Uh, even the British squad he couldn't buy, that you could go into the, the American PX stores and that kind of thing. And then, and then uh, younger uncles who were there in the 70s and then the early 80s. So, and by then I was studying for A-level history and it was always going to be about uh, modern European history and, and the Cold War. So, and then I was lucky enough to go to East Germany as well. And I went to the Soviet Union in 81 on school exchange trips. So there was only ever, if I was ever going to write a book, because this is my proper first book, even though I'm a publisher, it, it was always going to be about this because it was the thing that was always bubbling up inside me. And I knew how I wanted to tackle it and the people I'd like to talk to. So give us a sense of, for the, I mean, we do have, Amazingly, to, to Tom and me, we we actually have some young listeners um, <laughs> who, um, for whom all this is absolute ancient history. So, so maybe we should talk a bit about the context because actually, the context of this originally is not really so much the Cold War as the Second World War. It's yeah. the fact that the two pincers of the Allied advance, you know, that the, the the Russians get to Berlin first, and then there's this question of what's going to happen to Berlin and what's going to happen to Germany. So talk us through a bit of that background. Well, it's, uh, Stalin obviously was throwing a few uh, uh, bogus uh, decisions or, or, or ideas, I suppose, to the Allies, especially to Eisenhower, saying Berlin had lost its strategic importance to the Soviet the Red Army's thrust into Europe. But to them, it was always... Uh, the goal, the main goal was to capture the, the heart of Hitler's Reich. And there's a very important comment or, or line that his foreign secretary, uh, Molotov, said just after the end of the Second World War. Well, it's about 46, where he said, uh, what happens to Berlin happens to Germany, and what happens to Germany happens to Europe. And he said that just after the end of the Second World War. And that shows you exactly what the Russians thought of Berlin, its place in Germany and obviously Germany's place to the Soviet plan uh, in Europe. Now they, they'd obviously marched westward uh, up right up to the Elbe River where the demarcation was going to be for the Allies. Uh, that had been the agreement as in that's where the Red Army would stop and that's where the Allies coming from the West would stop too. And then they would sit down uh, and have uh, their discussion on how they were going to occupy and govern the country and de denazify it. Uh, to where it was going to be uh, a stable governing democracy in, in inverted commas. Uh, and that's what would happen at Potsdam, the Potsdam Conference in July. So obviously, end of the war is May 1945. By July, there's already the Russians are already in control of Berlin. Uh, and that's when the Allies were allowed to actually then enter the city in July, two months later. Uh, and what went on in the in the country, in, in the city itself, under Russian occupation has been covered by the likes of Max Hastings and the atrocities that were committed, et cetera, et cetera. But by July, the Russians were wholesale looting and pillaging and taking anything they could lay their hands on to ship back to, to the mother country to help rebuild their destroyed infrastructure, uh, which had had colossal uh, destruction wrought on it by the Wehrmacht. 
So at Potsdam, that's where the agreement was that the, the country would then be split into zones of occupation. Uh, it was originally only going to be what was seen by the Russians as the victorious allies, which were going to be themselves, the Russians, uh, the Americans and the British. Uh, de Gaulle from France put up a protest and obviously uh, it was deemed necessary for uh, real politic that the, the French were involved. Uh, so the Americans and the British gave up some of their territory uh, so that would be under French control, obviously on their border. Uh, so the, the, the overall plan to have four zones of occupation for the country was then mirrored for Berlin itself, which was obviously was seen as the capital of the country. So therefore, it was deemed necessary that there would be four zones of occupation for the city itself, uh, and obviously French, American, British, and the Soviet zone. And that's the way it was uh, as we were then going through into... Uh, uh, the late 40s and what could then be seen uh, would be uh, the Allies strenuously trying to uh, evolve uh, their sections of Germany itself and their sections of Berlin itself into a, a, a fully functioning uh, democratic uh, civilian-led uh, government. So it's just, just how far is Berlin from the frontier of the western zone it's 177 kilometers so roughly right. 100 miles so, so that's inside island, the soviet island, island of, of democracy you could say inside uh, the, the soviet zone of occupation there were links obviously there there were it's never never a formal agreement this was allowed by stalin uh, in discussions it was never actually signed documents that i could find in the archives or when i was talking to various commanders who were in charge of the allied garrisons there were uh, there was a road uh, uh, demarcation uh, from Helmsdorf uh, on the, the east-west German border that led into West Berlin. There were three allied uh, air corridors, and then obviously there were various canal routes that would take shipping in and out of the city itself, all to supply the city, because like you just said, it was an island within the Soviet zone uh, that had to be supplied by the Western allies from the Western zones. So, so Ian, if, if there's, it's not, it's not a, there's no legal framework governing that, the various corridors, the road corridors, the rail corridors, the, the air corridors. Um, because obviously this is key to the story and the survival of West Berlin. Um, and as the, as the Cold War starts to get chilly, what is stopping Stalin from just cutting them? The, the, the fear of a third world war? Is that the only thing that stops him? Yes, I would imagine so, because uh, he obviously wanted a, a, a unified, uh, weak uh, Germany, uh, because in that way, he would probably uh, eventually have what was going on in the other eastern countries that the Soviets were occupying, as in uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria. They all fell eventually in the, throughout the, the middle to late 40s to uh, what basically is communist coups that were taking over. So the, the actual uh, civilian uh, elections that were being held uh, were gerrymandered and Soviet, gov Soviet uh, sympathetic uh, governments installed that answered obviously to Stalin and the Kremlin. That's what he wanted for Germany. He wanted uh, uh, the Allies out. He didn't want a military presence uh, that he still saw as the capitalist enemy within Germany. He would rather have them everyone out, and then eventually, through hook or by crook, through the back door, you'd have a Soviet uh, takeover of the government. Eventually, uh, it wasn't in his interests to have. Uh, a big military camp in uh, West Germany or in West Berlin, which is what it was by 1948-49. Obviously, the Cold War becomes, you know, more intense 
the the mutual suspicion grows um effectively relations break down and then in the i mean you've got the berlin airlift where berlin is kind of sealed off and the allies so that's uh, 49 is it 49 48 49 yeah yeah 48 june 48 to may 49 and then you have this intervening period where 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 there is no berlin wall but well there's a sort of intellectual and and cultural Berlin Wall, but not a physical one. Mm. And what's going on there? Are people just fleeing across the across the border into West Berlin, and then through? Can they get from West Berlin into West Germany? How does that work? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they right up until about 1952, you could still get over the the, the West uh, West German East German border anyway. I mean, you could get you could get through. You had to be very very careful, and a great many people were arrested and imprisoned. A few people were were shot, but not not many. So it was possible, but the the crux came really in 1953, where you had the the, the East Germans uh, rose, the East German workers rose up, uh, uh, protesting about uh, their pay, their working conditions, uh, the lack of consumer goods to buy anything, just what a hard life they were living. And what became like a localized uprising in Berlin ended up spreading across the whole of East Germany, which was only put down within a week or so by Russian tanks uh, and obviously the KGB helping out these German government as well to, to take out the various protests, thousands of people in prison. And from that point onwards, it was very much a, more, a much uh, uh, more hard-headed approach the East German government had to their own citizens about where, well, what they could do, their, their freedom of movement, uh, where they're allowed to go, to stop them obviously going. But to the East German citizenship, what had been a trickle uh, up until 52, 53, if people wanted to build a new life in the West because they might be unhappy living in East Germany, uh, became a flood. So you're looking at thousands every week uh, getting through uh, the border. And the one border that was possible uh, to get through pretty much unmolested, uh, if, you, if you knew what you were doing, was Berlin. Because what you had, again, was you had the, the four occupation zones were still intact, but they were unmarked border unmarked borders and by unmarked what I mean is there wasn't a hard border there wasn't armed guards there that were checking every single person that was going through because what your younger listeners have to remember is especially if they live in a city or a big town if they think about where they have to go to every day to get to to go and do things uh, whether it's going to the dentist going to school their parents going to work they might crisscross across these towns and cities as everyone does, everyone does in London, whether it's on the bus, the tube, etc. Uh, that's what was going on in Berlin, even though it was East and West Berlin, there were zones of occupation. East Berliners under the Soviet zone could still travel to work in West Berlin. Uh, they could still go to the hospital or they could go and see relatives or friends. Uh, and that was the loophole. So if you're very clever and careful and you're not obviously showing you're carrying all your belongings to, yeah. to leave your life in East Germany, that's how you could get across. And obviously, lots of people were stopped, but thousands upon thousands of people uh, managed to escape to a new life. And I mean, it's not we're not skipping too far forward, but by 1961, and we're getting to the war, 2.1 million East Germans had fled to the West. Ian, can I ask you then, so say the summer of, of 1961, I'm sure this is a really, it's an impossible question, but I want to ask it anyway. Do you have a sense of how many what percentage of people in East Germany are are true believers in communism, and 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 what perc- and what percentage are, are people who are desperate to get out? Well, I think you'd have to look at uh, 
if you if you talk about the latter, the latter is is easy to look at because you look at the statistics. So, like I said, two point one million had left by nineteen sixty one, and that's a sixth of the population. And wow, from that, a lot. from that sixth of the population, fifty percent of them were under twenty five years old, and the bulk of them too were from the professional classes. So I'd say you'd leave if you were ambitious, right? Exactly. Were- well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, higher education. So the socialist dream that they were trying to build was very much: you'll have free. Uh, education right up to university level you'll have a job for life because you'll be going into pre-planned occupations uh that's fine but as dominic just said if you have plans because who knows really what they want to do even when you're a student uh so if you even diverge slightly from the official uh the official storyline of where your career might go or where your life might go uh you were deemed a, a threat to uh uh, the ruling party, the ruling government, society in general in East Germany. And obviously we can talk about the the, the heavy surveillance they had on the population in terms of the, the Stasi operatives, the secret police. But like I said, 50% were under 25. And that's the lifeblood of any economy. Uh, if they're departing to go and start a new life in the West, it's a brain drain. It's an economic drain on on the East German experiment surviving economically. And so, and so the true believers, the true believers. True believers... What, what- well, I mean, at any one time, again, if you look at the statistics and you listen to, to when you're talking to East Germans themselves, I'd say I, I interviewed over 50 East Germans for my book. And I'd say at least half of them were, uh, I wouldn't say true believers in the purest sense, but they, they believed in the system they were in right. until they ran into problems further down the line as their their lives were, were developing and their, they wanted their careers to grow. So I talked to people that... They were in the, the, the East German socialist uh, version of the Hitler Youth, so to speak, that, uh, uh, that uh, believed completely and believed the war was necessary. But by the time we get to the 1980s and they're seeing their restrictions more and more curtailed, especially in travel, they were being they, they'd become very cynical and wanted to change the system and wanted to get out of the country. So I'd say not even 10% were true believers. But how many of us are ever true believers in anything? I mean, it's like saying we live in the Western world of capitalism and democracy, but how many of us would say, yeah, I'm a really true believer. I think about it all the time and I I love our system. I mean, that's not really – I suppose they just muddled along, didn't they, until they – a lot of people just muddle along. I'm not sure that's true because because communism is – I mean, it's a faith. It's it's something that you feel is – changing the world for the better so in a sense it, it it does imply a kind of ideological commitment in a way that perhaps a commitment to you know the, the right to to buy you know luxury goods perhaps well, I mean, yeah, isn't quite the same but way I, but i was going to say i mean one of one of the key interviews i had in the book uh, a guy called professor stefan voller that's his title now and he's director of the gdr museum on museum island in berlin it's one of the best uh, cold war uh museums in Germany and to see what life was really like in East Germany. Uh, very, very intelligent man, obviously, a best-selling author. He wrote the very first book of what life was like after the war came down. He told what life was like as he'd been growing up. It was a number one bestseller. But anyway, his father was on the, 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 the East German Politburo, so to speak, and was an economist. And Stefan uh, grew up in that atmosphere and he was a believer. He, he, he volunteered, well, he did his national service in the East German army. Uh, he was seen as one of the brightest students that they had. He was allowed to travel to Moscow to, to study, but gradually the, as he's seeing the, uh, the erosion of civil liberties, uh, increase, but especially by the eighties and he's seeing some of his friends being in prison. He's seeing some of his friends escape the, the veil 
is pulled apart and he, he might he might be sitting down and having lots of arguments with his father by this time and and that's what he was talking to me about saying you know by the 81 82 so that's seven years before the wall came down he was a firmly firmly against the regime he just didn't know how it would how it would end and how he could possibly effectively bring about change he was just as surprised as the wall coming down as anyone else so let's go back to 61 yeah sorry so the summer of 61 so yeah. Uh, what's the thinking in the sort of East German high command? So they're seeing, I mean, obviously they must have a sense of numbers. Yeah. They must get a sense that all these people, and, and and do they just think this is utterly intolerable? We have to do something and this is the obvious thing to do? Or is, is there a real debate within the regime about the wall? Do some of them see the, the PR disaster that it will be? Well, Walter Ulbricht, who was the... Uh, uh, leader of East Germany had been from the late 40s, really. Uh, and by the mid-50s was was the de facto leader, uh, recognised as such. He'd, he'd been arguing since probably 56, once, once Stalin had gone and Nikita Khrushchev had taken over and given his famous speech behind closed doors of... of uh, what, what a tragedy it had been for for Russia that Stalin had been in charge, et cetera, et cetera, jumping ahead. But uh, it was seen that there could be some kind of uh, more open relationship between the East German government and the Kremlin. So instead of a one-way traffic of orders, you will do this, you will do that. Ulbricht was allowed to, to obviously regularly visit the Kremlin, sit down with, with Khrushchev and, and tell him his problems. And they're all very aware. They're looking at the statistics. They're seeing this flood, of, uh, this migratory flood of uh, East Germans going to the West. So from I would say from 57 onwards, uh, Ulbricht was constantly uh, telling the, uh, Khrushchev something needs to be done. And he was hoping it would be done on a more strategic level, that Khrushchev would win some kind of uh, concessions from the Allies, where there might be a harder border uh, along East and West Germany, as well as in Berlin itself, that would make it difficult for these German citizenship to, to, to escape. These kind of things weren't happening. So by the time you're getting to 61, and like I said, by then a sixth of the population has just disappeared to the West, it was really crunch time. I mean, I would imagine, again, having talked to various people at the time and looked at in the archives, they were probably only a year away from economic collapse if something hadn't been done by that time. And obviously to the Allies, they're thinking, this is great. Welcome yeah. aboard. Just come, come on in uh, because we know what's going to happen. So there was that. But then as we'll, we'll talk about the 61, it was just almost like a perfect storm of – You've got a new American leader in John F. Kennedy. You've got Khrushchev coming to the table, very much more belligerent than he had been before because he knew it was crunch time because he was being told this by these Germans. And to him, just as much as the Americans had their domino theory about democratic states falling to the communists, Khrushchev had this fear keeping him up at night thinking, well, if I allow East Germany to fall, what's going to happen to Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, et cetera, et cetera. I can't have this happening on my watch. So it's a decision for the Russians as much as it is for the East Germans. No, it, it was always a decision for the Russians, just as it would be in '89. So the East Germans can't do anything unless they get the, the green. They wouldn't the have moved a muscle. They wouldn't have moved a muscle. They could have done, but they they wouldn't okay. have had the backing because the th- the key thing is in East Germany you've got over three hundred thousand Red Army troops. You've got over three thousand Russian tanks, the air force, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. that's what's keeping the, the the or propping up, I would say, as well as obviously 
Soviet Warsaw Pact uh, aid economic aid packages is keeping East Germany going. And so it happens on a Sunday, right? Yeah, it was perfect time. I mean, what it's like? Uh, didn't Pearl Harbor happen on a Sunday? You always pick a really great time where you know <laughs> Christmas Day would be the, there. You the go. Key to- <laughs> uh, you, you know, you know. Uh, typical uh, for for your listeners, and I'm sure if you guys have been there, you go to Berlin at the weekend. Everyone just leaves the city and, and tries to get to their their gardens or, or their allotments that they've got in the the various beautiful woods and and lakes that surround the city. I mean, it's fantastic. And that was what was happening at the height of summer, August 13th. It's uh, the great bulk of the city was just relaxing. Uh, the allied garrisons themselves were relaxing. Uh, and no one, well, I, I say no one. I mean, the, the allies were expecting the, the, the East Germans and the Soviets to do something because the pressure had been building up all throughout 61 to that point where something had to be done to relieve this pressure. Uh, and that's when they struck. Operation Rose. And so just one quick question, which absolutely has always fascinated me, and and it's something that people bring up all the time. If you throw a party and you have to lock your 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 guests inside, that may, you know, to stop them leaving, that may cause you to, to, to have questions about how good your party actually is, you know, what a good host you are. Does it not occur to Walter Ulbricht and his colleagues that if they have to lock their citizens up behind a wall, I mean, do they never think about the quality of their regime and uh, their offer, to use the jargon? You know, do, do, do they never have a, a grain of self-doubt? Oh, we've got to build this massive wall to keep everybody in because they're leaving. Well, no, because you're, you're talking about uh, complete 100% believers in the, the, the socialist plan, the utopia that they'd seen developing in in Russia the Soviet Union since the end of the of the Russian civil war in by the mid 20s i mean these guys had been committed communists all throughout hitler's uh period of of power uh quite a few of them had actually fled to Russia and, and been housed in the Kremlin. I mean, Ulbricht is very famously uh, one of the, the guys that's sitting in a trench uh, with uh, Khrushchev at Stalingrad in 1942-43, giving propaganda speeches to the, the, the German troops that were surrounded in the city to try and break their morale. These guys had been uh, honed to uh, build the kind of uh, country or, or you can call it dictatorship that the, the Kremlin wanted. And also, isn't I mean the, the context also is denazification. So the wall is the what is it? The great anti-fascist barrier. The anti-fascist yeah. barrier. Yeah. Well, they, so, they called it. And so, and yeah. so, people presumably people who are, are trying to escape to the West are, are cast as as neo-Nazis, as fascists, as as people seduced yeah. by the the evil glamour of yes of this kind of Hitlerian legacy. But, but it's harder. It's harder to denounce them as that when, like we were saying earlier, a great deal. Of, a great many of them are from the professional classes. And it wasn't just the odd one or two persons from your locale that would be going. Overnight, a whole factory could disappear. Overnight, a whole doctor's surgery could disappear. They would literally just put the shutters down, put the lights out and go. So you can't, you can denounce them publicly, but the, to their, to the locals who know them and everyone else who knows them, they, they, they know the truth. They just haven't, those that but- stayed just didn't have the gumption to go. The people at the top who are, who yeah. are doing this and who presumably are not kind of full of self-doubt, they, they do see themselves as gauged in a kind of Manichaean struggle between, you know, communism yeah, and fascism between yeah. light and, uh, and dark. Uh, and so presumably in that light, it makes, you know, you can justify it because. Yeah. Well, it's, it's yeah, I, 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 
yeah, they, 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 to them, they were building the utopia. And I, again, if you, if you go to the various, like I said, amazing interactive museums they've, they've built now over the last 10, 15 years, on a certain level, the life that you would have in East Germany, especially by uh, the 70s, uh, where there was more money, more consumer goods, that kind of thing. And like we said, you've got free healthcare, free education, job for life, et cetera. Uh, some you know, guaranteed housing, basic, but guaranteed housing. To a lot of people, that's, that's great. That, yeah. That's what they want. But it's, it, I would argue it's the general, to the generation that grew up just after the war, that was enough for them at the time. It's to the following generations, you and I, who were, were all now in our 50s, but back then in the 80s, we'd be teenagers in our 20s. We wanted more. Yeah. Okay, well, we so the, the Berlin Wall has been built. Yeah. Uh, I think we should have a, a commercial break now to, so that listeners can hear about all the consumer durables that Western capitalist society has to offer. And then <laughs> when we come back, um, let's look at, uh, at what it was like to live in Berlin when it was divided, at escape attempts and so on, and okay. then the process by which it fell. So thanks okay. very much. We'll be back soon. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are in Berlin, a divided city. The wall has just gone up in the summer of 1961. And uh, our guest, Ian, is talking us through life in Berlin and what it was like to live in the divided city. So, Ian, there are people who, I mean, their families are divided. They have girlfriends or boyfriends on the other side of the wall. or, or I mean, so, so this just comes down overnight and your life is literally kind of ripped in two, I guess. Yes. I mean, you're looking at 
So it's a city of over 3 million people. And as you were saying about how can you just split something like London or Paris, it's exactly what they did to Berlin. They did it really well, very efficiently, very quickly. So you've got overall, you've got 150 kilometers worth of barriers that, that went up straight away. And it wasn't a physical wall straight away. So that's what people need to realize. That the, the, the East Germans and the Soviets were putting their toe in the water straight away with just cement posts and barbed wire. That was the very first, that was the first iteration of the barrier that went up because they had to see what the Allies were going to do. And as soon as they realized within 24 or 48 hours, well, actually, they're not doing anything. And we can, we can handle the civilian uh, uproar, but the Allies themselves aren't trying to push through these barriers with tanks or armored cars. Let's crack on. And that, that, that was the next phase of Operation Rose. So you've got 192 streets overall cut off, 97 going out of Berlin into the East German hinterland, because like we were saying, it's, it's 100 miles or so behind uh, the, the, the West German barrier. Uh, the, the, the overground train, uh, uh, the S-Bahn, the underground train system, the U-Bahn, they've all been closed off. The sewer systems are closed off. So, sewers? Because yeah, oh, yeah, people can escape through the sewers. That's what they were doing. So, And it was very much, again, as I was talking to people that were there at the time and they were telling me their stories, it was very much a cat and mouse. So every time the mouse, as in the escapee, is blocked on a certain way. So, you know, the underground system, the U-Bahn's blocked. How am I going to get out? Or right, I'll try the sewers. And it was successful for a few hours or maybe a day or so. And then the, the authorities found out and then they would block it. So, and you've got overall, ac- across the city itself, where the main barriers were being built at the time, you had 81 official crossing points that we were talking about. All these tens of thousands of East Germans were able to cross over. They'd now been reduced to 10. And they were now being heavily uh, reinforced, first of all, like I said, with cement posts and barbed wire, but within a few days, cement blocks, which is where we all see these famous scenes. They were going to be breeze blocks. Ironically, the material they used to build the first iteration of the Berlin Wall had originally been set aside to build this great new housing the workers were going to have in East Berlin. Right. That's why housing suffered all the way through the 60s until they managed to come up with more to build these houses because they'd use them on the Berlin Wall. <laughs> Walls, uh, not houses. But a quick yes. question. So not back in 19, the early 1950s, I think 1953, there had been a kind of an East German uprising. It's yes. Bertolt Brecht made his famous remark about dissolving the people and getting a new, the, a new people. Get new, get new people. Why, why is there no... Why don't East Germans take... To, are they just so cowed and terrified that they don't take to the streets in 1961? Well, you've hit the nail on the head. So the the East German government almost was toppled in 53, very quickly. It could have happened. If the Russians hadn't come in with tanks, it would have happened. But they learned their lesson. And so they'd spent a few weeks realising and briefing uh, police, secret police, border guards, and the regular East German army of how each unit was going to uh, monitor and guard the borders as they were being closed. And specifically, they weren't looking west, really. A few of them were, but the majority of them weren't looking or pointing their guns westwards at West Berlin civilians or the Allies. They were looking eastwards towards their own people. The whole point was they had to suppress very quickly, suddenly, any kind of dissent that was going on, especially from their own uh, their own troops, border guards and police that might be thinking, have second thoughts and think, actually, I don't want to be involved in building this wall. I'm going to I'm going to either protest and help try and stop this because that's what had happened in 53 whole, you know, thousands of police and guard border guards had gone over to the protesters side. And that's what they really were successful at stopping in 61. And from 61 to 89, how, how many escape attempts are made? How many succeed and how many people die? 
Well, it's roughly, it, uh, the statistics say it's over 10,000 escapes were made. And that's not just through the Berlin Wall itself, but that's obviously through the, the intra-German border, which is far harder to get through, I, I would say, especially in the, uh, the 60s. Because like I was saying, it was only by the mid to late 70s and then going into the 80s that I've got a really lovely diagram of it in the book. It shows you how impossibly difficult it would have been to get across what was then called the death strip to get from east to west berlin i mean it was, it was practically impossible to to actually get across on foot yeah you'd be caught or killed uh whereas the inter-german border was slightly a little bit easier uh, and less lethal uh, so it's about ten thousand, and they reckon it was anywhere between three to five thousand were successful but again, if you look at the statistics, it's in the early days. So when you've got the first iteration of the wall, the first iteration of the death strip, it's not as sophisticated or as, as uh, uh, highly monitored as it was by the 80s to where it's practically impossible. So a lot more people took their chance of trying to escape in the 60s. And that leads me to tell you that there's over about 200 deaths altogether, uh, eight of whom uh, were East German border guards caught in crossfire when there was gun battles exchanged with people escaping. But uh, the majority of the deaths were in the 60s because that's when it was seen as easier to, to try your luck. Uh, whereas by the, the 70s, you wouldn't do it. And that's why you famously, by the 70s and 80s, you've got people trying to tunnel underneath because that was the, the, the safest option of uh, not being discovered and obviously getting as many people out as possible. And some of the people who die are children, right? Or teenagers yeah, yeah. at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's uh, there's one tragic case of a mother uh, was escaping uh, in the car going through the checkpoint and her baby was starting to cry. And so she smothered the baby in a uh, obviously trying to quieten her down. And by the time they got through the checkpoint, she's actually suffocated. So tragic, tragic stories like that. But I mean, the, the, the first death was literally two weeks after the first uh, of the wall had gone up in August the 13th. So 24th of August was the first uh, death by shooting. Uh, and that's when obviously both sides knew that, wow, these guys are for real. They are really going to kill their own citizens who are trying to escape. And that was a tailor called Gunter Lithkin, who, a bit of a Dell boy, uh, for those who know only fuels and horses. He, he was a tailor, but he did job. He lived in the East, but he earned his living in the West. And obviously the ratio, the disparity between Western currency, which would buy you a hell of a lot more if you lived in the East, which is what a lot of hundreds of thousands of Berliners were doing at the time. And he just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he was actually moving to West Berlin when they closed the wall. He just happened to be on the eastern side uh, because he'd gone to collect things. And he spent the next two weeks going up and down the border, trying to figure out where he could try his luck and escape. Realised, right, I'm going to try here. Tried to swim across the one of the canals uh, uh, that were connected, one of the, that, that flow into the, the, the Spray River. And... Uh, they fired a few warning shots at him and then he was hit three times and he died on uh, the Western side. Uh, and obviously, as, as uh, Tom was saying, he was then uh, denounced in the Eastern press as a, a fascist agitator that had tried his luck to flee to the West and had been stopped. Uh, and he was, he was the first death. And that, like I said, that, that was definitely a, a red flag that the regime was flying to the population to say, OK, you can try it, but this is what's going to happen to you. And the, the majority of the deaths were in the 60s. Right. So, so you, you, you've said that there were um, 10 crossing points in the yep. wall. And the most famous one is the one that you've given as the title to your book, Checkpoint yes. Charlie. Yeah. Um, and I suppose check, the notoriety of Checkpoint Charlie is that it's seen as 
the flashpoint that makes Berlin the most dangerous place in the world for much of the of the Cold War. That's the reputation that it has. How 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 deserved is that? Do you think how how dangerous is the Berlin Wall as a as a, as a a possible trigger for the Cold War becoming hotter? Well, it's much like uh, where we've got today with the uh, demarcation line between North and South Korea. So it's it's you, you've got seriously heavily armed forces just pointing their guns at each other uh, in, in a kind of pseudo kind of p- almost peace treaties going on. It's the same with Checkpoint Charlie and the Berlin Wall itself in Berlin. It was the one place where uh, allied, predominantly American, but allied uh, soldiers, uh, usually the, you know, the elite units uh, that were stationed there. And, and it was a garrison of about 10,000 altogether, French, German, sorry, French, uh, American and British faced off with with uh, Soviet uh, units as well. And famously, uh, Checkpoint Charlie was was given the, the, the code name straight after uh, the Berlin Wall had gone up because you had the, th- the Allies had to have the three points of contact. Uh, you've got the, the east-west German uh, checkpoint crossing that would get you access through that 100 miles of Soviet territory. That was Checkpoint Alpha. That would then get you to Checkpoint Bravo, which was giving you entrance into the Allied sectors. And then the next sector, uh, phonetically, would be Checkpoint Charlie. And that's the, the why it was given that. And that was still uh, the, the one crossing point that Allied military and Allied uh, diplomatic international staff were expected and allowed to cross into the Soviet zone. Because what you've got to remember is, yes, they built the border. Yes, they were entombing their own East German citizens inside uh, their own country, their own city. But they still had to abide by the international agreements that had been uh, signed off at Potsdam. Where Why? They, Why did they have to? Uh, because that was their way of making sure that, that Kennedy at the time, J, JFK, who was obviously president of the United States, uh, and Macmillan in the UK, uh, wouldn't interfere with the first iteration of the war. As long as the Allies could see right. that, okay. A, yeah. The, yeah, I know, see. yeah, they're not encroaching on our territory, our sectors, and they're still allowing us, our troops, our, our allied uh, diplomatic personnel to have their usual free entry into the Soviet zone to travel around as they please. The, those uh, uh, rules hadn't been broken. But to everyone else, obviously, who were trying to escape, that was the new, that was the new world they were living in. Talking about the, 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 the border guards and stuff, you have a lovely um, line in your book that I thought was fascinating. It was about the, you say, close relationships developed between Russian and British commanders rooted in mutual respect and the copious consumption of whiskey um so so <laughs> whiskey so, not vodka so they are facing off you know they are both armed there is this sense of paranoia and mutual suspicion but they develop a kind of as the as the war becomes something you take for granted they basically end up they're not they're never friends obviously but they end up no. kind of getting along is that right well, yeah they they do what what i found funny was uh, all the allied uh, soldiers and diplomats i talked to had huge respect for the soviets uh not much respect for the east germans uh especially on the uh, the military intelligence side which is what you're referring to dominic so so we had the the the, uh, the military intelligence units that all sides had in the city that were allowed uh, technically, to uh, check each other out, because again, that 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 was one of the the unwritten rules that a lot of the the civilian populations in in the respective Cold War countries never knew. The Soviets, the Americans, the French, and the British all allowed uh, intelligence units to 
go along agreed lines of travel into in and out of uh, uh, the eastern sector and the western sector. And so this is what this is this is what makes it the world capital of espionage. Absolutely, all that reputation that you, yeah, Le Carre yeah. and everything that yeah. it, it it is justified, yeah. is it? Yeah, because I think it was it was a very good way of both sides. Uh, trusting each other, and I use that very delicately that word, that uh, there weren't any surprises in terms of uh, troops that might be stationed in that particular area or weaponry technology that was being used. Both sides were giving each other a, a small amount of leeway to check each other out to make sure that uh, there was some kind of tacit agreement or, or a level of trust between the two. And that gets back to the point of where they would have regular get-togethers and Obviously, they were official get-togethers, but a lot of the time they ended up swapping caps with each other, giving each other badges, and obviously getting drunk on vodka and whiskey. <laughs> uh, and the, yeah, there was, there was a lot of respect. But on the East German side, no, because the Allies made a point of uh, making sure that the East Germans realized that you're not a sovereign country. We don't recognize what you've done to the city. Uh, we don't recognize what you're doing to your own citizenship. And that, that gets down... If you drill down to what Checkpoint Charlie actually looked like, it was just a small wooden hut, very insignificant. It meant a lot, but it was just very insignificant. Where if you go 500 yards from that checkpoint to the East German checkpoint, by 1989, huge complex. They spent millions and millions and millions of pounds on, dollars worth, uh, 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 to make it as sophisticated as possible, to, to make sure that when you came through, like going through Heathrow Terminal 5, you go through layer after layer of checks and passport control. And, uh, you know, they, they, they had cameras everywhere. And that was them, again, puffing their chests out, saying, you are entering our sovereign nation and look how powerful and strong we are. And uh, the, 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 the no, most notorious flashpoint is, is when a, an American diplomat is going to the opera yes. in East Berlin. Yeah. And is, isn't it what, what kind of triggers the – it ends up with tanks facing each other. Isn't, isn't that because it's an East German guard – asking for his yes, credentials rather, than a, rather yeah. than a Soviet one. Yeah, but I mean, that, that had been building for a couple of months. So August, you've got the war going up. This happened in October. So by October, Kennedy has obviously reinforced uh, the Allied garrison. He, he sent a battle group right up the Autobahn, unchallenged, a couple of thousand guys. Uh, he sent his, uh, 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 his Vice President uh, Johnson to go and bolster the, the morale of the Berliners who felt they were being abandoned by the Allies. But he also sent, as his uh, kind of man on the ground, he didn't have a, a position in the chain of command, General Lucius Clay, who had been the very first Allied commandant of Berlin post-Second World War Berlin in 1945, and was also seen uh, as the architect of the very successful Berlin airlift. So to Berliners, West Berliners, he was a hero. He still is a hero if you go over there today. Uh, one of the main thoroughfares in, in, in Berlin's Clay Alley. Uh, he was sent over and he was the instigator of this standoff in October 61, where one of the diplomats, Alan Leiter, was taking his wife, like I was saying, free access, uh, unmolested, into East Germany, uh, sorry, into East Berlin, because that's where all the main theatres and uh, operas were still uh, operating. You could have a, an amazing lavish night out that would cost you peanuts uh, because of the, the ratio in uh, discrepancy of, of currency. But instead of allowed to be driven through unmolested, without his papers being checked because he had his diplomatic plates on. The, as you said, the East German officer insisted. He refused and he was just stuck there with his wife, Dorothy, in the Volkswagen until Clay heard on the phone 
And he was rubbing his hands with glee, thinking, this is the chance I've been waiting for. And he sent a platoon of uh, fixed bayonets uh, uh, USMPs in their Jeeps to go through, not only surround the Volkswagen and intimidate these German guards, but then to say, and just carry on. And they drove them. And they didn't drive them to the theatre. He made a point of driving them all the way around the inner, inner part of the city as a kind of show of defiance to say, you're not going to stop us. And then this happened two, three nights in a row. And by that time, uh, Clay had thought, right, they're still not backing down. I'm going to have to up the ante. And this is all without the knowledge of, of Kennedy and, and the White House, what was going on. They just trusted him to do this. Because obviously this is a bit well before the communications we have today. Uh, and that's where tanks started to go uh, up to the checkpoint. And that's, that's what uh, Clay ordered, uh, caused panic, uh, caused units, American units, allied units across the globe to go to DEFCON 3, then to uh, launches of bombers, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when obviously a panic JFK and the White House got involved. And that's where both sides... Uh, managed to calm it down because obviously the Russians were thinking, well, if you're going to bring tanks to the party, so are we. But obviously the Russians could bring hundreds of tanks and and the Allies only had what they were allowed to have in the garrison in Berlin, which was a dozen at best. Uh, like I said, there was a garrison of 10,000 troops altogether. All three countries, three sectors had, had a squadron of tanks and armoured cars. They would have been squashed within hours. Uh, so there was not only... Russian tanks that you'll see in the very famous photos at the checkpoint facing off against American tanks. There's dozens of them parked in the streets. So the Americans knew that they stood no chance. And that's why it was talked down. And very quickly afterwards, once it had calmed down, that's when Kennedy ordered Clay home. Not in disgrace, but he was ordered quietly home and they just got <laughs> yeah, on with yeah. Calm down. Let's get on from getting now. on. Yeah. yeah. We, we don't actually have tons of time left, actually. This this has really flown by and we've completely failed to, to ask any of our audience's questions that we sort of maliciously solicited. <laughs> and then Dominic, have you got ask. them there? Because I haven't. There was a question about... Um... Well, actually, I know what I want to ask Tom. I'm, I'm going to ask what I want, Tom. Go yeah, on, go on. down. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so tons of people said, did David Hasselhoff... Bring That's down the question the I wanted to ask. Is that the question? I knew you'd that want to ask that I question. Wanted, yes. so, I was trying to look, find it on the So on lots Twitter of people asked this question about David Hasselhoff, David Bowie, of course, Bruce Springsteen. I think you talk about Bruce Springsteen, don't yeah. you, in your, in your yeah, book? Yeah. So, so this becomes a kind of different kind of confrontation that the, the, the allies, the West, will, will have these gigs or have these events. I mean, Ronald Reagan shouting, you know, yeah. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And they do this deliberately, do they? And the musicians in particular, they're kind of rock stars. They they are party to it. They know what they're getting into. They see it. They're perfectly happy to be co-opted as kind of cold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, uh, there's lots of stars had uh, major, major concerts in West Berlin. So you're talking about David Bowie. There was also Michael Jackson, uh, Brian Adams uh, in the 80s. Uh and they caused a lot of disruption on the eastern side because, you, like I was saying, you've now got your generate your second generation of young East Germans in their twenties, the teenagers in their twenties, thinking, "Wow, we want this world." Because they can, they can, they can, they're getting all this music on their their legal radio sets, uh, and so they could go right up to the border within reason, uh, and because you're obviously going to hear it in the city, you can hear this yeah. music going on. And the, the likes of Bowie and Michael Jackson, they were, you know, they were very, they were very clever in, you know, they had their gigs and they had their speakers, some of, the, of which turned to the East to make sure the population could hear it. Uh, but this had caused civil unrest and lots of people arrested in prison. So by the time I talk about, I talked about Bruce Springsteen because that was a seminal moment in 88 where 
he didn't give his concert in West Berlin. He gave his concert in East Berlin. He was invited by the East German government because by then, 88, you've got a, a younger generation. They are, you know, they're, they're still fanatics, but they're in government and they're telling the older leadership hanging on to power. We have to give we have to give some kind of panacea to the younger generation or this is just going to roll on and on. We've got to show them that we're we're developing, we're evolving. And that's why Springsteen was allowed to perform there. And he was on his tour in the Europe anyway, so it fitted. But what they weren't expecting, they thought they'd get 70 to 80, 90,000 people that were specially invited. So I've got one of the tickets, they're all printed. But uh, it's the people will say it's 200, between 200 and 250,000 people flocked to see him. And as we all know, he's a very intelligent man. He's politically motivated as well to a degree. He could see what was going on in front of him. And that's why I wouldn't argue he politicized the event, but he definitely gave a, a very uh, heartfelt speech about freedom. And then obviously he, he sang his Bob Dylan song, Chimes of Freedom. Yeah. Uh, and that had a, a major, major effect because that kind of event uh, and the ripples it caused to that generation of East Germans couldn't couldn't keep a lid on that. That was just a, that was just another chip in the wall of what what had been going on throughout the eighties anyway. And so then, going into eighty nine, yeah, what is the process by which the wall ends up falling? So from say eighty three all the way up to eighty nine, the peace movement had been growing in East Germany, and that provided an, um, a protective umbrella for thousands and te- hundreds of thousands of people to protest uh, about whatever they wanted to protest for, but it, it was under the guise of they, they were, uh, uh, it was in line with the church, which had been sanctioned and allowed in the eighties by the government. Cause again, it was one of their, their ways of trying to keep the populace in check. But by 89, the, the peace movement had just mushroomed, exploded. So you've got major, major uh, marches, peaceful marches, but protest marches nonetheless that were happening in the major cities outside of uh, Berlin in East Germany, so Leipzig and Dresden. And the key thing was they weren't brutally suppressed. They weren't stopped. They were allowed to march hundreds of thousands of people. So again, that kind of imagery is making its way around the country of East Germany, but obviously into West Germany, into the Allies as well. And once you've taken that momentous step, it's then there's just a natural progress. And the East German government with the younger generation that was about to take over in a bloodless coup and, and got rid of Eric Honecker, who'd been, who'd been actually the, the architect of the Berlin Wall, had built it and had then governed from 1970 all the way through to 89. He was very, very much ardent communist. Uh, he'd been ousted in, in October, but... Uh, you get Egon Krenz, don't you? Egon like Krenz, yeah. And, and key thing, Egon Krenz had seen what the Chinese had done in Tiananmen Square that year, where there'd been a very brutal, bloody crackdown of civilian protests, thousands killed. He didn't didn't want, as he said, he didn't want a Chinese solution to what was going on in his own country. And that's why there was definitely a kind of, let's back off and give them what they want and we'll try to manage this. And it was the process of trying to manage this, but making sure that the the one-party state was still intact that led to the, the... the terrible press conference about announcing... Yeah, it's all a mistake, isn't it? Isn't it all a mistake and it all goes wrong? I, I, I found the actual annotated uh, briefing notes that were given to uh, 
Shabowski, the press secretary, by Egon Krenz, and he scribbled, he scribbled all over it, and he just hadn't bothered reading it properly because he was tired. He, he was, he'd been involved in all the press briefings for weeks to the to the Western Allies and to his own countrymen about what was going to be delivered to them to to, to solve this problem. He'd been given a week's leave because he was exhausted. Came back, and his first job was to give this press conference uh, on the 9th of November, and he just didn't read the brief properly. wasn't over the brief, and instead of saying the plans that they were going to do further down the line over the coming months of announcing how they would give their countrymen free movement of travel, because that's really what these Germans wanted above all else. That's why they were trying to press to go out of Austria and Hungary and that kind of places. Uh, he announced, oh, it happens immediately. Yeah, he had one job. One job. <laughs> and he, I, I, would imagine, yeah. I would imagine that's what Egon said to him. You had one job to do. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so again, that goes out and then everyone starts piling over. Well, they did. Well, they, no, no, they, the, they piled the down. They, yeah, they piled down to the checkpoints, and it's almost—I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, but it's almost like a Hillsborough moment. You could say you've got these tens of thousands of people that have gone to all these, you know, dozen checkpoints along the border, and it's just creating a crush. And to the the commanders on the ground, they haven't been given any instructions. Their urgent phone calls that they were giving every five minutes aren't answered by their next chain of command. And as we know, it's a command economy, it's a command policing structure as well. They don't know what to do. And they're thinking, well, I'm not going to be the guy responsible to to open fire on my own people to clear this. Look at them. How can I get rid of them all? So they had to open the, the gates. And obviously... The allies are watching. The so, 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 watching. so it's it, so it's the it's the guards who make the, the decision. The, the, so it's not yeah, going yeah. up to Krentz or Gorbachev or anything. No, no. It's a, the, the commanders on the ground gave the 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 the, uh, the key decision to open the uh, the gates. But what was discussed as this was going on at the very highest level were, as we saw in China, you had the hardliners in the government and in the military and in the Stasi saying, we have to crack down. We, we have units around the city, motorized elite units we can, we can bring in and we can put this to bed within 24 hours. It's going to cost a lot of blood, but we can do it. Where you've got Krenzer, fair play to him and his wing of the party saying, well, no, this can't happen. We can't do that. We, we can't have a Chinese solution in a country like ours. How would it look? And we've spent months trying to soften our way to where we need to be. Uh, and that, that's the decision taken. So, again, I've interviewed people in the book that, you know, there's one guy, uh, he was at the officer training camp that was on the, the East German Czech border. They, they'd been having uh, emergency riot control uh, training for a week, thinking they were going to be bussed into the city to, to quell it. Uh, and obviously they were then told to stand down. So there were lots of, I'm sure it will come out eventually, uh, but there were lots of very high strategic conversations going on. And as we said right at the beginning, that the Russians propped them up from when they started in, uh, the uprising started in 53, the Russians withdrew their support, put support under Gorbachev in 89, because Gorbachev had said, my troops are staying in their barracks. Yeah, you're basically on your own. We're not going to get involved in this domestic fight. As soon as they knew that, they, 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 they lost. And Ian, you've, I know you've talked to lots of people who are people in the Stasi and people in the regime and stuff. Are there people you've talked to who think that they should have kept the wall up and that yeah. you know, they were too weak in 1989? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had a very, I wouldn't say surreal. I, I was hairs on the back of your neck time, but uh, I was with the, one of the commanders. Uh, he, 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 literally grown up with Checkpoint Charlie. So he started as a, a private and by 89, he was the commander of Checkpoint Charlie, Peter Bachman. And uh, 
I was in his, there's a northwest, uh, Hohenschönhausen is an area of northeast Berlin, and it's where a lot of the elites uh, of the border guards lived, and they were given the best housing. It's still all there, and they're all veterans now, and that's where they all live. It's like boys from Brazil almost. Uh, and so I was in his apartment, and I felt like I, it, it was like Deutschland, uh, the series on, on Channel 4. I'm in this apartment and I felt like I was back in the 70s with all the decor, his, his armchairs and all these photographs of him uh, in, his, in his pomp, all dressed up there. And he just gave me an hour and a half's education on why the East German experiment uh, was successful, uh, why his service meant something, why he was bitter about the outcome, why they needed more backbone and leadership and why he felt betrayed about what his lot had now become living in this flat in, in, on the suburbs of East Berlin and doesn't have a pension and just scraping by, that kind of thing. And he's not alone. He's, he's just one person I interviewed. That's an amazing wow. story. Um, so the Berlin Wall, come, I mean, it's vanished basically now, hasn't it? I mean, it's kind of got disassembled yeah, very so quickly. I, I can understand why they, they, so yeah, I can understand why they wanted to get rid of it because it was, it was an abomination and lots of people had died crossing it. But in some ways, obviously, as you guys know, it's, it's, such a pivotal moment in, in 20th century history. It would be, it would have been great if they just left a, a, a decent portion. That's what I was going. I was just going to ask you that. You see, I mean, this. I we did a podcast. We did three podcasts a few weeks ago about statues in London, about statues coming up, staying down. Yeah. My instinct is always to conserve. Yeah. And I look at Berlin and the Berlin Wall, and and I know I'm not a Berliner, so I have no, you know, useful input into this at all, and it's not my decision. But part of me wishes it had stayed up, that it was all still up and well, you could walk along it. in. Like well, there's a tiny bit of it, Tom. There's not, like there's, not, there's not much of it. And of course, no, not, to, no. a lot of people, to a lot of people, it is an obscenity and something yeah. that they want to be. What do you yeah. think about it, though, Ian? Do you, would you, do you, is there a bit of you that wishes there was more of it still up? Well, yeah, yeah. As a historian, definitely. I mean, I, I would have, uh, I think if you'd kept the, a large section that ran through the central government section, the, the Mitter section, yeah. middle section, which is where uh, Checkpoint Charlie is situated and where the British sector was as well, so the Brandenburg Gate. I, I think if we kept that, uh, that would have been really good from an education point of view more than anything else. There, there are very small fragmentary sections of it that are there, uh, one of which is on the the, uh, the French sector, and there's a, there's, a, there's a really lovely museum there too that's next to it, and they've retained the, the watchtower so you can see. But nearly look, pretty much all but one or two of the watchtowers, and there's over 300 of them. They've all gone. There's one you can find in the central section of the city, and the locals call it Last of the Mohicans because that's the only one. <laughs> it's the only one. And there's an old guy there. He's, he's, he must be 90 at least. He sits on his deck chair waiting for and for a fee. He'll, he'll open the, unlock the door and let you go up it. So I, I managed to do that. But uh, would yeah, they it's, not it's, think of the tourist industry? What were they yeah, but, thinking? But the thing is, Tommy, you go, you go, it's, it's like going to Edinburgh and you're, you're, you have an avalanche of Harry Potter memorabilia. You, <laughs> you go to Berlin, there is so much memorabilia of the wall you can buy for ridiculous well, prices. I, I sometimes think they knock the, China, the wall of China down rather than yeah, Berlin. Yeah. There's so yeah, much, you can see it from space. So, there so are, much there. Well, surely there are factories in China now producing <laughs> Berlin walls. Sure. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and I can't thank you enough. It's, it's, uh, it's been brilliant. And who needs the Berlin Wall itself when you've got your book? Uh, thank and, you. Uh, I can't thank you enough for... Um, yeah, brilliant book. Absolutely brilliant human stories that we didn't get a chance to get into. So... Um, um, Many, many thanks for that. Um, I mean, it's an amazing story, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. It's still ongoing. 
I, th- I mean, it's fascinating for for those of us who who kind of grew up with it, but I, I'm sure it'll be fascinating as well for people who live in a world where it just seems impossible to imagine that Berlin was divided. So the Berlin Wall has gone, um, b- but I guess, Ian, we have your book, um, Checkpoint Charlie. Um, anyone who wants to know more about the Berlin Wall can't recommend it highly enough. Fantastic read. Uh, thank you so much for um, giving us your time, giving us your knowledge. Uh, we will see you soon with more historically themed podcastery. Auf Wiedersehen. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dot com.